Ethel's Travel Tales, accounts from an addicted travel photographer. Single Stories, A Whirlwind Journey Around Australia, Part 1, Western Australia and Northern Territory, Uluru and Alice Springs. Single Stories, A Whirlwind Journey Around Australia. Part 1, Western Australia and Northern Territory, Uluru and Alice Springs. February 1999. At the time, I was very much part of Thomas Cook's publishing stable and had already photographed a few of their travel guides. The editors asked me if I would do the images for their book on Australia, somewhere, incidentally, to where I had never been but really wanted to travel. The project alone wasn't worth the money or the time for me to go all the way there, they said, so they decided they would come up with two more books for me to do at the same time. My efforts and fee would warrant the journey. Despite the fact that Thomas Cook were reasonable payers, the financial input would be worthwhile only if I could get sponsorship. Fortunately, I had enough warning so that I could contact the individual state tourist offices. Some proved very generous, others not. Altogether, though, I gathered enough subsidy that the trip was justified. I would be on my way to Australia at last. To Perth via Kuala Lumpur. Of course, I was terribly excited to go somewhere I had always wanted to visit, but had never previously had the chance to go professionally. I don't remember much of the journey, except arriving bleary-eyed at Kuala Lumpur Airport. All these terminals looked the same, and I thought, I'm in Malaysia, yet another country to which I had never traveled. But according to the rules of country lists, I had to spend the night in order to count the places one of my visited, so I couldn't add it. Oh well, I thought, maybe another time. My days on my arrival in Perth wasn't simply jet lag. I had left dreary, grey, low-light England in what seemed like a too-long winter and landed in a place with hot sun, dry air, and brilliant colours. took me a little while to get used to such vibrant hues after having adjusted my vision to dim. Admittedly, the first days were a bit of a blur, but it seems I began to tour almost immediately. Perth is one of the most isolated capital cities in the world. It had a population of about a million when I was there, and it rests on the Swan River, as well as by a series of beautiful West Coast ocean beaches. I remember having had a further disoriented experience. Perth reminded me a great deal of Los Angeles, the city in which I had grown up, all the time I had lived there. As a contrast, there was a kind of quaintness, a lot of pretension here, Yet it had very similar weather, not to mention the sort of coastline I remember from my childhood home, before it had become very developed. It was as if I had gone back in time, as well as place. So the differences seemed even more jarring. I could take a train to the beach, something my dreams created by combining my previous California life with the current London one. I kept on wondering if Perth was real or if my jet lag haze was creating it. 
In the meantime, the Western Australia Tourist Office had laid on a series of trips for me. Early on, perhaps even the next day, I took a boat trip on the Swan River. What an excellent way for me to wind down, forget London, and slowly start embracing this new continent. As we sailed back, still some distance from the city, I could see the skyline reflected in the water. The city impressed me so much that I tended to forget its isolation, but it was certainly there. Chatting with locals, I discovered that many of them had never been to their own country's main city, Sydney, let alone the capital, Canberra. Their holiday destination would often be to Bali. Later on in the trip, listen to forthcoming part two, I found out that many people on the East Coast had never traveled West and that their choice for vacation instead would be Fiji. Day two, Perth. Today I rose early as the tourist office were sending me to Rottnest Island, a boat trip of about 11 miles offshore. I was equipped with a bicycle to tour around. I don't remember much except pedaling in the heat. I haven't known what to expect and seem to recall not having any water with me. A mistake. I made it around half the island, not realizing I could have finished the circuit if I had had a map. Apparently, the place is famous for its quokkas, a strange local animal, but for some reason I never saw one. I was assured by locals they were everywhere, but they avoided me. Returning by the afternoon, I visited Fremantle, or Frio, a nice trendy part of Perth. It was known for its street of cafes, or cappuccino strip. Of course, I indulged. Slowly, the memories of that time are emerging. Could it be the dispelling of the jet lag? Or was it the coffee? Day three around Perth. The tourist office arranged another excursion, this time to areas further afield. We were driving north in the even hotter direction. I had to reorient myself to realize that in the Southern Hemisphere, north means warmer in contrast to what I was familiar with living in the upper half of the globe. A two hour drive through increasingly empty landscape to the Nambung National Park took us to the pinnacles, weird low golden outcrops of limestone, very photogenic. En route to and from there, I saw the most amazing flowers. It being summer here, I was told they were banksias. We halted at a pit stop on the tour by the beach in which we all went swimming in the beautiful, clean, clear ocean waters. Again, I was struck by the lack of development. The strand was wonderful, and I have a vision perhaps aided by a photograph taken of me, of my rising out of the pristine surf. A quick visit to the Lancel and Sand Dunes, listen to my earlier podcast, Into the Dunes, and then it was time to return to Perth. After such a long day, I found the veneer of London was varying very thin. I was beginning to get used to Australia. I left Perth in my provided rental car and began to explore the area a little bit to the south now. Driving along the coast, past the towns of Bunbury and Busselton, as well as the lighthouse at Cape Naturalista, I made my way to Margaret River. The Western Australia Tourist Office in London arranged a lovely bed and breakfast for me to stay in, and the focus was to explore the wine-growing region. Again, the area reminded me a great deal of California, with the West Coast facing, so much so that there was even surfing. It was like a dream in which I remember the state of my childhood, 
but with adaptations springing from the experience I had since. The wineries were lovely, particularly one, Amberley Estate. Here was a sophisticated establishment that offered jazz brunches. I was invited to a very nice lunch. Afterwards, the proprietor asked if I would like to see the actual vineyard, and of course, I said yes. We toured the grounds with my recognizing the familiar, neatly laid out rows of lush vines. Suddenly, from out of nowhere, a kangaroo came bounding over the lines. I shrieked with surprise, and no doubt delight, and cried, a kangaroo, it having been the first time I saw one in Australia. The owner looked at me quizzically, as if he couldn't understand why I was so startled. It seemed to him that such things were simply commonplace. I toured a few more wineries, soberly, much as I would do in the Napa and Sonoma regions in California. The industry was so familiar, I forgot I was actually on the opposite side of the globe. March 1999, around Margaret River. I took off for the day, heading even further south, down to the lighthouse at Cape Lewin. On the way back, I went inland to see the Cary Forest. Apparently, these are ancient trees that grow only in this region of the world. There's also the Tingle Tree, a rival to the California Redwood in its height and its age. Sadly, I had to get back to Perth too soon, so I was on my whirlwind tour of Oz but I vowed to come back one day to spend more time, which I did actually, in fact, three years later. Northern Territory, Uluru. I didn't have the time, nor at that point, the inclination to travel overland to the Red Center, so I took a plane to Uluru, or Ayers Rock, as it used to be known. With a seat on the plane that had a great view, I remember seeing a dark lump rising out of a flat orange backdrop. There seemed to be nothing else except maybe some other smaller lumps that rose above the plain. So far, I wasn't impressed. Sails in the desert, the Ayers Rock Resort, was gorgeous, with flat sails covering the public areas for shade. At that time, I'd seen nothing like that, although years later in Las Vegas, I saw something similar. A desert heat device, perhaps? The time of day was a bit too flat to do good shooting, so I thought I'd go over to the National Park headquarters to have a chat. The ranger was a large, blonde, white-skinned Australian who vehemently argued in favor of Aboriginal rights. This included her, and their, request not to climb Uluru. At the place were also quite a few excellent examples of Aboriginal art, something I later discovered is one of the cheap attractions of visiting their culture. Adhering to the requests, I decided not to attempt the climb and merely drove around the rock a few times. Attempting to get a photographic angle, I waited till sunset to catch the good light. Red of the rock against the red of the sky was very effective, especially with the shadows showing off contours that were invisible early in the day. At night, everyone at the resort came out and I remember being told that I could cook my own steak. Pieces of meat were waiting to be put on the body, and every customer could prepare each piece to their own preference. I took my steak rare. To Alice Springs. 
I rose very early to catch the sunrise at the Olgas, a.k.a. Kachachucha, the Ayers Rock domed offshoots located near the Big Rock. As I drove away, I also managed some more views of Uluru. I was heading off to Alice Springs, somewhere that seemed close by when looked at on a map in the UK. However, it turned out there was nearly a 400-kilometer gap between them and virtually nothing along the road. I had wanted to travel the unpaved side road to get to the canyons, but was told that despite the shorter distance on the map, it would take longer to drive. Therefore, I stuck to the sealed road and took off on what seemed initially beautiful. Red, red soil with bright green bushes and a staggeringly bright blue sky. Lovely, a perfect color chart and great to test any film. Nice. So I set off. There was almost no one on the road, and after a while I realized almost nothing anywhere else. The landscape was flat. With the bushes in the way, I couldn't see into the distance. The way was straight. Dead straight. No curves at all. Soon I lost the radio station. I began singing to myself. Slowly, my speed got higher and higher. There were no limit signs. In fact, no signs of any sort. I went faster and fast, not knowing if there were speed cops lurking behind a patch of vegetation. No one. Nothing. Finally, I reached a roadhouse, that uniquely Australian institution of a petrol station and a cafe, and very little else. As there was a padlock on the fuel tank, I walked into the bar with a dog sleeping on the floor, and a man came out from behind a curtain. Petrol? he asked. Yes, I replied, and he threw me the keys. When I filled up and returned, buying my soon-to-be-usual iced chocolate milk, I asked him what the speed limit was. There is none, he replied. The 140-kilometer-hour, 87-mile-per-hour I was going was fine. Otherwise, the journey would have taken far longer. Traveling due east, I eventually hit the main road and headed north. Finally, in a clearing, I could see what seemed like a large but relatively unremarkable bunch of buildings. This was Allard Springs, and I had reached it at last. Of course, after I checked into my basic motel, which was notable by having the typical English affectation of a kettle with tea and biscuits in my room, I took off for Kings Canyon at Watarka National Park. At this point, it was getting late, so I drove around and then took a walk around the canyon floor. It gave me a glimpse of the place. I returned to my simple little accommodation to watch the sunset in the middle of this desert town and await the next city. Day two, Alice Springs. Another very early morning in order to do the rim walk around Kings Canyon. I drove in a dash in the desperate hope to be able to see the sunrise from the top of the cliff. There was a small group of us in the dark as we made our way up the steep route. The light was increasing, the hint of sunlight getting stronger. We sped up, marching along the path. Just as we reached the top, the sun breached the horizon and we saw our day begin. It was great. The rest of the rim rock walk was almost anticlimactic. Photographically, the shadows were too heavy to get much detail, and by the time the light was better, it became too harsh. But the journey was nice. 
peering into the depth of the canyon. Some hours later, I made my way down another and apparently much less of a gradient way and headed back to Alice Springs. Here I explored the town, looking at the Aboriginal art and the locals. There were quite a few indigenous people. By necessity, the ones I saw were the ones of the street. They did not seem approachable, although the Aboriginal shopkeepers clearly were. Still in sunset mode, I made my way at the appropriate time to Anzac Hill, which gave me a great view in the right direction of the town. Not much to see, though. Day three, Alice Springs. Continuing to need early light, I drove over to the other canyons near the McDonnell Ranges. Here I visited and snapped Glen Helen, Ormiston Gap, Ellery Creek, and Simpson's Gap, among other sites. It was all reminiscent of the American West, with its canyons and national parks. I felt very much at home, especially since there were so few people, if any, to remind me it wasn't the USA. I spent most of the day here, waiting for the right illumination, finally returning to my last day in Alice Springs. The Australia journey will continue in Australia Parts 2 and 3 in future broadcasts. <laughs>